Would you please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is our text this morning, and I, I, want to, I want to set the stage for this text. Last week, we heard a wonderful message entitled, God Rejoices Over Us. God Rejoices Over Us, and it was from Zephaniah 3, 14 to 17. And the main point of that message last week was this. Now listen, here's the point. God rejoices over us with gladness. And loud singing. Even when we are at our worst. Because He does this. Because of who He is. And not who we are. And He rejoices over us with loud singing. With a benevolent love. That doesn't simply tolerate us. But it actually rejoices in us. It loves us. His love. He loves and He actually loves us. He doesn't just tolerate us. Much like a bride and a groom display that love to each other. Ricky and Mallory are looking forward to that day. When they will display that love. I remember last May, May the 8th, when my daughter Melinda and David got married. My goodness. I did the, I did the wedding, but I was there when they were doing their vows. It, it, was, it got warm in the room. I mean, I mean, his eyes, I watched his eyes as I'm coming down the aisle with my daughter, and his eyes were glowing. There was a love and a passion. There was a joy overseeing his bride. Guys, that's the way God looks at us. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Today, God's burden for you, for me, is to live in the good of this gospel truth. To apply this message from last Sunday to our daily lives. But listen, in order to do that, I had to ask myself a couple of questions. I, I had to wrestle with the reality of my sin in the face of my holy God. And I had to wrestle with this question. How in the world can God actually rejoice over me? When I know that He's a holy God and He hates my sin, how can He love me at the same time? I don't know about you, but I had to fight with that this week. He loves me so much that He sings loudly over me. How? How could God be pleased with me, a sinning Christian? The Apostle Paul asked it this way in Romans 3, when he said, How can God be just and the justifier of the unjust? Well, I believe our text this morning answers these questions. So turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I'm going to read this text as we, as we look at this passage. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that as we hear the truths of this text, we would learn to live in the good of your love for us. Lord, I pray that we would actually see you rejoicing over us with loud singing and benevolent love every day of our lives. Lord, on the good days when we live lives of obedience to you, and on the bad days, Father, when we turn our backs on you and find ourselves disobeying you. Oh God, help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
According to verse 21, God has gone to extraordinary lengths to make our reconciliation certain so that He can rejoice over us with gladness and loud singing. You must understand verse 21 in the context of verses 18 to 20. You see, in verse 18, we see that God, that Christ reconciled us to Himself. In verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. In verse 20, Paul implores us on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God. This word reconciliation is prominent. Really, what we see in verse 21 is the doctrine of justification. God is the one who initiates our reconciliation through His Son, by putting Him forth as our substitute, that we might benefit from His sacrifice. God gives us the righteousness of Christ. This passage represents the great gospel truth of imputation. What does that mean? God imputes or gives our sin to Jesus, and then God imputes or gives His righteousness to us. Really, the doctrine of justification is in play. But it's, it's more than a doctrine. It's personal. Because, see, this is the foundation for us to believe that God rejoices over us with loud singing. This is the foundation for me to believe that God looks at me with the same love and passion and joy that a bridegroom would look at to his bride. In fact, in Scripture, we're called the bride of Christ. And he is our bridegroom. And and I think sometimes we think when we come forth, instead of looking at us with that shining face and that love, he's like, oh my goodness, there he is again. You know, we see ourselves as ugly and stained and flawed. I mean, I'll never forget that day when I saw my daughter come out of that room. I mean, she's beautiful. I love Melinda. She's a beautiful woman. But that day, her, she was shining. It took my breath away. See, I don't think we see ourselves that way. We're ashamed. We're walking down the aisle with, with torn clothes. Marred by sin. But oh, friend, because of the righteousness of God that we get in Christ, God does see us that way. And we've got to fight to believe it. And this text is a battle tool for me and you to fight. You see, let me go another way here to try to help you understand this text. Because what I'm afraid of is that some of you will say, I know that text, and I know this doctrine, and click out. Don't do that. Don't do that. You see, what we have here in this text, what we have here in this text is someone giving us a gift. As a matter of fact, as I was thinking about this text, it sort of reminded me of something else, the negative of that. That's when someone steals something from you. In fact, it reminded me of stolen identity or identity theft. That's right. When someone steals your identity, what do they do? They steal your identity to gain access to your accounts. They certainly don't earn that right to use your accounts, but they gain that right through stealing your identity and they take all the money that you have. Here we have the exact opposite. Here, instead of having identity theft... Instead of having a thief come and steal your identity and take your money, we find God giving us the gift of His identity and all its riches. We have here not identity theft, but what Christian author Elise Fitzpatrick calls identity gift. See, what if someone with far more in his account came and gave you the gift of all of his riches? 
and took the debt of all your accounts. Actually paid off the debts of your accounts. I was talking with Sergio earlier this week and we were talking about this thing called the American Express Black Card. Actually, that's what it used to be called today. It's called the Centurion Card. I think there's only about 17,000 people in the world that get it. It's by invitation only. It's for people to spend about $17,000 a month in purchases. Maybe $250,000 a year. It's for the big spenders. It's for the people that pay for everything in cash because they simply have it. See, identity gift is someone giving you their Amex black card and taking your little Visa card that's been maxed out for months. I mean, you, you are so upside down on that card that you can't even pay the debt. The interest payments knock you down. So they give you their Amex black card and they take your maxed out credit card. In a sense, it's identity gift. You get the benefit of their identity. God the Father sends God the Son, Christ, who comes and exchanges His unlimited riches for your crushing debt. Let's take a closer look at it. Because friends, you've got to admit that on Wednesday it's tough to believe that, isn't it? We're not hearing the song of God's rejoicing over us in our ears often. We're singing the song of condemnation. We're hearing the song of condemnation in our ears. We've got to fight, man, to hear God's song. Jason, this text gives us the ammunition to fight. So, looking at the text again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, notice, for our sake, He, for our sake, He, the first point here, God the Father is our benefactor. God the Father is our benefactor. For our sake, He, who is the He there? Well, we simply have to look back at verses 18, 19, and 20 to answer that question. Verse 18, it says, all this is from God. Verse 19, it says, God was reconciling the world to himself. Verse 20, God making his appeal. So when it says that he, for our sake, he, it is God who initiates this identity gift. He's our benefactor. In any large gift giving, there must be a benefactor who has unlimited riches, who then gives those riches to someone who is poor. The benefactor is God the Father. The poor ones are us. See, here we see God's benevolent love, friends. He actually loves us. And what's amazing is that He initiated this gift solely out of who He is. He was not in any way obligated to pay off our maxed out credit cards. He was not. He did it because of who He is. He did it because of His love. Last week we learned, who is God? How did God reveal Himself? When Moses said, I want to see your face, and God said, I can't show you my face, but I'll show you my back. And this was right in the time in Israel, when Israel had been sinning and sinning big time. How did God reveal Himself? Exodus, write this down. Exodus 34, verse 6. Exodus 34, verse 6. We find out, who the Lord is. And it says this, the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, not just a little bit, but abounding in steadfast love, which is a synonym for mercy and faithfulness. God is our benefactor. He initiated this. Because he chose to do it. He did it because of who he is. He did it so that he could sing and rejoice over us with gladness. This is who God is. 
Is this the God you know? Is this the God you worship? Does this view of God affect how you live? Does it affect how you view yourself before God? Well, it does if when you sin, you run toward God instead of away from Him. But if you find yourself running from God and God's people when you sin, I wonder, perhaps you don't really understand who God is. It does affect how you view yourself before God if you have confidence in God rather than accuse God. Oftentimes, we'll be driving in foreign cities And if I lack confidence in the person that is leading us, rather than saying, ah, I'm just resting here, we'll get there. I'm like, you don't know where you're going. Hey, stop over here. Hey, ask this guy. We're lost. See, if your view of God is not this God, then in life, instead of having confidence in Him, you will accuse Him. You will find yourself angry at Him. You will find yourself grumbling and complaining and doubting and anxious. How could God do this to me? See, if you believe this about God, then the song of His rejoicing over you with loud singing and gladness will be ringing in your ears. But if not, the song of condemnation. I can't do this. I'm a hypocrite. I'm out of here. Does it affect how you treat others? Does this view of God, our benefactor, the one who's merciful toward us, does it affect how you treat others? Are you a merciful person? Or would people say that you're a critical, judgmental, self-righteous person? Which are you? Your view of God will determine who you are. It will determine what comes out of you when people legitimately disappoint you sin against you, when they blow it. Your view of God will determine how you respond. With mercy and patience or with critical, harsh words. No patience. Oh friend, what a diagnostic. Who is your God? Who do you worship? Is He your benefactor? Second point. This passage here, going back to verse 21, tells us clearly That God the Son is our substitute. Look at it there. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So whom did God make to be sin? Well, the first thing we need to do is to look at the previous verses in order to identify the antecedent of that pronoun, Him. What informs that pronoun, Him? Him is referring to whom? Well, let's look back at verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Verse 19, it is God who in Christ was reconciling the world. And in verse 20, it is on behalf of Christ that we make our appeal to be reconciled to God. So grammatically, we know that him there, grammatically, all the evidence points to Christ. But the very verse tells us who him identifies. You see, in this verse, it says that person... For our sake, he made him to be sin. It describes him who knew no sin. Friend, let me tell you, there's only one person that's ever existed who didn't know sin. And that's Jesus Christ. That's it. He's the only one. So it's a self-identification. 
Jot this down. One of the many passages that speaks of Christ's sinlessness, one of my favorites, is Hebrews 4, 14 to 15. We're on point two. God the Son is our substitute, our sinless substitute. Hebrews 4.14 is proof of the sinlessness of Christ. It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Who is that? Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15 of Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's a good thing. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, one huge difference, yet without sin. Our sinless Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one whom God made sin on our behalf. Now we've got to slow down here. We've got to ask ourselves a very important question. What does it mean that God the Father made God the Son sin? Now, we're going to also ask why God did it. But first we've got to ask how. What does it mean? Let's start with this. Let's start with what it does not mean. Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that Jesus ever committed sin. And it does not mean that he became a sinner. It does not mean that. What it does mean, and this is something that Paul would have had in mind because as a Jew, he would have understood Isaiah 53. And he's informing this this, this use of the word sin. It's called hamartia, particularly the second use of it. That use there is unique to Paul, but he's using it on purpose this way because he's referencing Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, this use here, this is talking about a sacrifice for sin. A sin offering. That's how God made Jesus sin. Because he became a sin offering. A sacrifice for sin. For you and me. Jot this down. Isaiah 53, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 53, verses 9 and 10. And they made his grave. By the way, Isaiah's prophesying, looking down through the quarters of time, by the Spirit of God, prophesying of Jesus Christ. This is what he sees, by the Spirit of God. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man at his death. It's exactly what happened to Christ. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10. Now listen, catch this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. That's that sin offering. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. It means Jesus became sin for us. It means that he took our sins and bore our punishment. The punishment for our sins as our substitute. This is a place of the glorious doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. A lot of fancy words. But he bled and died to pay your sin on the cross. And we love God and we love that doctrine. And that's what God says. Look at my glory. Look at my glory. There is where he pays the debt using our metaphor. There is where he pays our maxed out credit card. There is where he gives us his American Express black card. And it's far greater than that. It's, It's the acceptance of God. It's all the good that Jesus has done. All that is in his account becomes ours, and the debt in ours becomes his. We were so upside down in that debt. And friend, that debt, metaphorically speaking of the credit card, is in reality a spiritual debt that can only be paid by hell, damnation, and eternal separation from the benevolent presence of God. Man, Jesus did that. That's important. God died on a cross for you. Oh, friend, that 
has an effect on his elect. That is worth fighting for joy every day of my life. That is worth fighting for the song of acceptance and God rejoicing over me with loud singing every day of my life. Not just so I feel good, but to honor God. To say, yes, Jesus, your sacrifice was effective and effectual in winning a people, your elect, who sing this song in their head when the rest of the world sings the song of condemnation, and rightly so, in theirs. Listen, Jesus... He became sin. You know how he became sin? By taking the curse upon us. Jot this scripture down. Galatians 3.13. Galatians 3.13 says the following. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He took the curse by hanging on the cross, friend. That's how he became sin. Now we can answer the second question. Why? Why did God make Jesus sin in that way on our behalf? Why did Jesus have to step in as our substitute? Why couldn't God just have wiped it all clean? I believe either either, either uh, Miguel or Corey this morning said, he didn't just wipe it under the, the rug. I think it was Miguel. Someone had to pay the penalty. He's right. We were singing that this morning in these songs. But why? Why did he have to kill your son? Why all the blood and the cross and the rejection? Here's why. Because God is holy and just. And he remains so eternally. He always was. He always will be. And therefore, he must punish sin. He must oppose sin. If there were an earthly judge who was known as the most just judge on this planet then that judge, when crime came to him, would have to punish that crime or cease to be just. If someone committed a horrible crime against society, then that judge would be compelled by the very nature of who he is to mete out a just punishment for the crime. Or he would cease to be a just judge. And that would cease to be a just society. And God will never cease to be a just judge. And his kingdom will never cease to be a just kingdom. So he had to do this. If he wanted to justify unjust men and women like you and me. If he wanted to sing and rejoice with songs of loud shouting over people that were marred and dirty and broken by sin. If that bride was going to be won back to the bridegroom with with love and care, someone had to pay. What the miracle is this, that that someone would be God himself. That's the part, friend. That's the great mystery that none of us will ever be able to fully explain. I can't explain it, neither can you. God was not obligated to this. He did not have to do this. He did not need us. I don't understand that kind of love. I'll spend the rest of eternity looking at it and thanking Him for it because I'm the beneficiary of it. See, no one had understood this at all until Jesus revealed it. Not even when he came. I mean, he tells his disciples, I'm going to die on a cross. And they're rebuking him. And he's telling Peter, get behind me, Satan. Nobody understood. Demon, Satan, nobody. Nobody understood Isaiah 53 properly until Jesus revealed it. They didn't get it. That God decided out of the depths of his love to take the curse for our sins on ourselves, on himself, by dying on the cross, hanging on the tree. God the Son, Jesus Christ, as our substitute. He was cursed so that we would be blessed. That's why. 
benefited from John MacArthur and, and, and many times listening and reading some of his, his, his works, but I was really benefited by what he said here. He said, he said, God the Father treated Jesus. He's explaining how Jesus became sin for us. God the Father treated Jesus as if he were a sinner by making him pay the penalty for our sin, though he was innocent. Sin, not his, was credited to him as if he did it. Sin was imputed to him. It wasn't his. He never sinned. It was our sin. He pay- Now, stopping the quote from MacArthur, I would say this. He paid our maxed out credit card bill. God poured out the fury of his wrath on Jesus. Made him pay every penalty point. So that we could have his riches. And he did this on the cross, friends. He was our substitute on the cross, friends. He was rejected by the Father on the cross, friends. There on the cross, he bore the sins of all his elect for all time. And there he cried out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? That, 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 that should be screaming in your ears. He was forsaken so that you would be re- accepted, friend. So this Tuesday night at 10.30 or this Thursday morning at 5 or next Friday at midnight when you're thinking I'm condemned and you're tempted to think God is not for me, you would hear Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you rejected me? Why have you forsaken me? So I can accept you. That's the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And it's available to every man, woman, an understanding youth that can, that, can, that can make this decision as God would give them the ability to. Every person who would bow their knee and their life in humble repentance and faith in Christ. See, Christ willingly became our substitute, exchanging His riches for our poverty. Have you accepted this exchange? Or are you trying to get God's acceptance by your good works? So how many do you have to do, friend? Before God will smile on you. You got your little sewing kit? You're going to try to sew up your tattered garments so that you're accepted in a formal uh, 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 place? Everybody sees that you have tattered garments. They see that you've done a terrible job of sewing up those garments. Only God can exchange your filthy garments for His. Isn't that good news? That's the gospel, friend. That's the gospel. The third point I believe in this text is that we, his people, are God's beneficiaries. We, his people, are God's beneficiaries. The title of this message is for our sake because I felt God wanted it to be personal for you this morning. Personal for you. Personal for you. God has made us his beneficiaries. Do you see that? For our sake. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So who's being described there? Our sake. So that we. Who is that? Well, once again, we're going to go back to our old friends. Verses 18, 19, and 20. In verse 18, you see this, this, this pronoun, us. In verse 19, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And in verse 20, and we. And we are ambassadors for Christ. Friends, our sake we, that describes the Old Testament, excuse me, that describes the New Testament saints back then, and it describes us today. It describes every man, woman, or, or young person here in this room who has been truly called by God, 
whose dead hearts have been made alive by the Spirit of God, whose blind eyes have been opened by that same Spirit of God, whose hard hearts have been softened and given the gift of repentance for their sin against God and given the gift of faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Does that describe you, friend? If that does, then you're the beneficiary of this great identity gift. You benefit from God imputing or placing your sins on Christ. And you benefit from God placing His righteousness on you. That's what that, the end of that verse it means. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become those who have perfectly obeyed God, though we didn't. It's a foreign righteousness. It's not our righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. But He gives it to us. He takes our maxed out credit card with all that debt, he pays it, and then he gives us the Amex black card of faith, and he says, here, you've got all that I have in my bank account. And his is limitless. There's only one person who has that card. And he gives it to us. Oh, what joy. See, that card, that gift, that exchange, that causes a song to be in our heads. It's the song of God rejoicing over us with loud singing. Do you hear the song? What song do you sing? You know how you get, you just start, start singing a song. You know, like your kids are singing a song, they walk through the kitchen, they're singing. Next thing you know, you find yourself singing the song. You're like, and then the kid goes, ha ha, you're singing the song I was singing. Sometimes it's a good song. Sometimes it's not a very good song. Sometimes you're singing a song in your head because your heart's not in the right place. Last week, I was here very, very early in the morning, about 8, 8.15, and, and I was walking through the back hallway there, and, and I just heard a, a beautiful young voice singing a worship song. And, and I came around the corner, and, and it, was, it was Amber Sedano. She was kneeling down outside there, putting tape on a cord as she was setting up the sound for the, for the hallway. And I just thought, she's singing this song with a smile on her face. Just worshiping the Lord, serving, really early on a Sunday morning. That's an evidence of God's grace. So, what kind of song are you singing? And does it put a smile on your face? Or do you have a bitter face? You know, there's people all over the city that sing really bitter songs, and it shows on their face and how they treat one another. What song are you singing? You can only sing the song that you're listening to from God. If you're listening to the world's condemning song, if you're listening to Satan's condemning song, if you're listening to the condemning song of your own flesh, friend, you're not going to be singing a pleasant worship song to God with a smile on your face. You're going to be a grumpy, mean, probably self-righteous, critical person. And your song, it's not going to bring a smile on anybody's face, beginning with yours. God wants to change that with this doctrine. Because in Christ, you have been made righteous. You've been made right with God. This righteousness is not yours, it is Christ's. And it brings a song to your heart. Again, I want to reference the Old Testament on exactly what this righteousness means. I want you to jot this down. Isaiah 53.11. Isaiah 53.11. Listen to what it announces in Isaiah 53.11. Out of the anguish of his soul, again, prophesying of Jesus Christ our Savior. He, Jesus, shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, and by the way, the only righteous one, 
My servant, that's Jesus Christ, make many to be accounted righteous. That's us. If we have faith in Him, have bowed our lives to Him, have repented of our sins, confessed Him as our Lord, and He shall bear their iniquities. Oh friend, this prophetic, this prophetic word was fulfilled in Christ. And in Philippians 3.9, we see a New Testament fulfillment of this prophetic word in Isaiah 53.11. Philippians 3.9 says the following... Paul, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, And be found in Him, Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the kind of righteousness that we get. That's Christ's righteousness. It becomes our righteousness. And hence we are reconciled to God. This changes everything, my friend. Does it change everything for you? Do you hear his song of acceptance? Does it drown out the song of condemnation? Well, this passage is the reason why you can hear the song of acceptance. And this passage is the truth that combats the song of condemnation in your head. As Aaron shared last week, the gentleman who preached on Zephaniah 3, he said this, Do you know God in this way? Who is your God? Do you hear him singing over you with a loud song of rejoicing? Or do you hear the song of condemnation. And if you don't hear God singing the song of rejoicing and acceptance, when do you think God will start singing over you? If God's rejoicing over us ever becomes dependent on our performance, then when will the rejoicing start? How many days of perfection will you or I need to string together before God starts singing? How many self-made laws will we need to create when, until we think that we are more acceptable now to God and we've got His attention. Oh, we are sinful and flawed, but oh, does not Zephaniah and Isaiah and Exodus and 2 Corinthians and Christ Himself, don't they teach us this glorious gospel that we are loved with an everlasting, immeasurable, incalculable, unsearchable, unsearchable, but we're searching for it, love. We're seeing it, never comprehensively, but oh, God's revealing it. He reveals it on a cross. You see, it's hard to fathom being loved like this, isn't it? Such benevolence towards one such as us. How hard to hear the Father's song over us when condemnation seems to sing louder. But as we look carefully at the Scriptures, as we look carefully at 2 Corinthians 5.21, we begin to see it. And God quiets. He quiets the song of condemnation with the song of His righteousness in Christ. And we're able to hear it. It's not based on who I am. It's based on who He is. It's based on His righteousness. And that righteousness now sings in our hearts and our minds, Oh friends, how like our God. But how often we forget or we drift into a functional belief of our performance. God rejoices over us because we're in Christ. God gave our sin and punishment to Christ. And in Christ, God gave us His righteousness and reward. The great exchange. We're reconciled to God in Christ. In Christ, God sings over us a benevolent song, not simply tolerating us, but welcoming us as He welcomes His Son. What we see in verse 21, friends, what we see here is the certainty of the reconciliation that we have with God. Therefore, final point, main point of this message is this. Let us live as reconciled children of God. Let us live as reconciled children of God. No time to share about God's discipline. Definitely he disciplines his children, but he does it rejoicing over them. He does it loving them. Never, never pouring wrath out on them. 
Oh, live, friends, as God's reconciled children. Live as the reconciled children of God. Live as those who have 24-7 access to the Amex black card of faith, my friends. Ah, let's pray for a moment now. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord God, I pray that you would, would, would apply this message in a way that my words simply can't. But I believe the words you've given me are the words that reflect your truth. Not perfectly, only your words. Your word is perfect. But, oh Lord, I believe that your doctrine, your truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, the trust that Christ has died as our substitute on the cross, that our sins were given, imputed to him, his righteousness, imputed to us, that it would change the song in some people's heads right now. Oh God, it would give hope to the hopeless. Lord, it would, it would soften hard, unregenerate hearts of those in this room right now that are no, they're not believers. But Lord, may that change right now. May that song awaken their hearts by your Spirit and open their eyes and unstop their deaf ears and change their lives. Oh, Father, this is our prayer. This is our prayer this morning. Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name.